don't know what the questions are, these numbers mean nothing. Um, and I think that's how a lot of my research starts is that I have a question for a client or I see something that's a little funny, which brings me back to the data. And only once you have an actual question to ask, does the data mean anything? If you know that you're in front of a 90% versus a 10% allowance rate examiner, if you don't have a plan in terms of how you're going to differentially act in front of them, the data is useless. I'm Chad Main, and this is another episode of Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where in each episode, we talk to a legal innovator about what they've been up to and hopefully get some real-world tips that those in the legal industry can put to use in their practice and businesses. In this episode, we talk to patent attorney Kate Gowdry about how she uses big data to help her clients push through patent applications. In our Legal Tech Founder segment, we talk to Warwick Walsh, the founder of Lockadia, a matter and spend management system built for in-house teams and legal operations. This is yet another great episode with another crazy smart guest with some great insight about the use of technology to assist with legal tasks. In this episode, I sat down with Washington, D.C. patent attorney Kate Gowdry about how she uses big data and technology to help her better prosecute patent applications on behalf of her clients. As an aside, and something that took me a minute to figure out after I got out of law school because I'm not a patent lawyer, is that when patent lawyers talk about patent prosecution, it's not the type of prosecution that most of us think about, like prosecution of a criminal defendant by the district attorney or prosecution of a civil case by a plaintiff. Nope. In patent law, prosecution means the process of writing and filing a patent application and pursuing patent protection for an invention on behalf of a client. I was excited to talk to Kate because she really, truly uses big data in her legal practice. So often, and not just in the legal industry, people talk about, air quotes, big data, but they really aren't doing anything with it other than maybe at most collecting it. Kate is going to download a lot of great info in this episode about how she collects and analyzes data to make strategic decisions and to get her clients in the best position to obtain the patents they're applying for. But before we get to the nitty gritty, did I mention that Kate's crazy smart? So you started college when you were 11 years old? I did. How'd that happen? They needed a third person for a class, a music technology class. And so my piano teacher was in there and she said, do you want to do this class with us? And I, I was excited to do that. After that class, um, I loved the entire college environment. So I kept taking more and more and more classes. And I took some, you know, in the summer is how they started. Um, and I started taking more in the school year. And then when I was in high school, I got some classes to double count right for high school and, and college credit. So by my senior year, I was pretty much entirely, senior high school year, I was pretty much entirely at the college. And then I graduated high school when I was 16 and college when I was 17. Yeah, that was my next question. You graduated college when you were 17, so one year after high school. Yeah. So then, even before you went to law school, you got a PhD in computational neurobiology. That's right. How do you make that choice? Well, I was initially double majoring in physics and political science, intending to be a patent lawyer. Uh, I hated the political science course. I was, I was just stuck in libraries, looking at old books, trying to find statutes. You know, for me, it was a big waste of time trying to find, you know, page 167 or whatever the index said you're supposed to look at. So after that one legal research course, I dropped poli-sci and I kept the physics major. And then I was, you know, what am I going to do with this? Uh, so I did a, a summer internship at Los Alamos National Lab. And I heard of neuro- 
neuroscience and it was exciting. Um, so I went that route intending to be a neuroscience professor. But then in grad school, I saw the realities of having to get grants and the meetings and the teaching and it wasn't the research, which is what I'd loved. So at the time I revisited the idea of being a patent lawyer. My uncle was one um, or is one. He's at Fish Richardson. And I talked with him about what the day to day was like. And you know, the computers replaced the books. Right. So the things I hated um, was was gone. And so I was a patent agent for a couple of years and really liked that. So I made the investment at law school at that point. So you get your PhD and which just for those, including myself, that aren't super familiar with computational neurobiology, what is it? It's very broad. So it's just trying to apply computational techniques to the questions of neuroscience. So it would include everything from trying to deal with the huge data sets of fMRI data to trying to develop a computational model for a cell. For me, I was doing a small number of experiments. Other people did many, but I did a small number of experiments, and I spent most of four years analyzing those, trying to look at how a population of individual neurons work together to try to um, encode information about the environment. We'll get to the big data talk, I promised, here in a few minutes. But before we get there, it's probably helpful to understand the steps in the patent prosecution process. So typically you start uh, with a request from a client saying, we have this general idea. We're interested in some patent protection. Then you have a discussion with the inventors, and we typically give feedback. Um, the larger companies with more attorneys that are there, you require a little less because they know what's going on. They've already vetted this in the first place. The smaller ones, you provide more input in terms of maybe you have five ideas instead of one, or maybe this one's not ready yet. And then you've focused what the invention's going to be. It's not a product, right? A lot of people kind of have that misconception of they're ready to release a product, and then they want a patent on it. But that's separate from innovation ideas of what you can get patented. So then we'll prepare a draft of the application and there's multiple back and forth so, so that the uh, client, the inventors can review the product. And then you file it. Uh, and depending on whether you fast-tracked it or not, most or not, usually it sits there at the patent office for two, three, four years before they ever look at it. And you, you say most are not fast-tracked. It seems to me in some fast-moving you know, industries and technological areas, you would want to fast-track it. Why do you do and not, don't fast-track there are a few different ways to fast track it. And the one that's kind of the easiest of the least requirements is to just pay for it. So it's called track one. So if you're a big company, that costs $4,000. If you're a small company, it's $2,000. If you're really small, it's $1,000. Typically, it makes the entire process more efficient, not just quicker, but less back and forth. So you can recover some of that initial expense, but you do have to front that money, you know, right in the beginning. Oh, so it could be a cost. It, it is. A, it, if you don't fast track it, what's the cost? Uh, well, the filing fees are you know around a thousand initially, but then you'd be adding on an additional four thousand on top of that. Well, let's say you're Microsoft or Amazon or Google, or money's not really going to be a problem. Why wouldn't you fast track it every time, or do they? They do not. <laughs> <laughs> they have a large volume. Right? They're filing a lot of patent so applications. It does. Like I said, my research has shown that it's more efficient and you have less back and forth with the patent office and every time there's a back and forth you're paying your attorney and so overall uh, with the large companies I've found that it's a break even in terms of expense and for hmm. the smaller companies you actually come out ahead but smaller companies often it's harder to front that money right from the beginning right and then you're taking all of that expenditure which normally could span you know between four six years and you're putting it into like a one-year time period so it's a lot this is a lot of work it's a lot of work yeah it's a lot of money so so you, you file the application, you may or may not fast track it, what's the next step? 
So then the examiner looks at it, and they have all these patent uh, requirements. It's got to be new, it has to be non-obvious, and it has to be the type of thing that the patent office said can be patented. Uh, so it can't be directed to an abstract idea, which has been an issue um, somewhat recently. What's an example of an abstract idea? Nobody knows, <laughs> including the courts. Um, there's been you know, a lot of business methods that have had issues. And so if you take something that people have done for a long time, and you just put that on a computer, but it's something that you could easily see a person doing, that's going to be quite problematic. When you have some overall computer system that's retrieving data in a particular way, executing a query in a particular way, this is where it's a gray area. And oftentimes you're going to have to go back and forth with the examiner to try to tell them it's not just something a person could have done and made faster on a computer. It requires, there's some technical advantage of implementing it on a computer. So the examiner takes a look at the application and either says, yes, patentable? Which is really rare. Yeah, so I would guess ballpark, like 95% of the time, maybe even higher, you're going to get at least one rejection. Um, in a sense, it kind of just shows that the examiner is doing their job. Um, and then you might amend your claims, you might argue, uh, we like to interview a lot, so we'll talk with them. And you have a back and forth. So it could be you know, zero times, it could be, I've seen all the way up, there's been some in-transfer cases that have 15 back and forth. It's extraordinarily expensive and not some poor decisions are being made along the way. So what are your options if, you know, you're one of the 95% that you get the notification from the patent office says, no, you can't patent this. What, what are your, obviously you can abandon it, but what are the other options if you don't want to do that? Yeah. So you, you have the choice to talk with the examiner, to interview them. I find that really helpful because then you're not just, you know, ships passing in the night and interpreting different terms in different ways. But that itself is not sufficient to respond to the rejection. You would need to file a written response to the first one. If you've gotten two or more rejections and then you can appeal it, you can take it up to a different decision maker, the PTAB. And there are different techniques as well that you can use throughout the way. Like after the final office action, you can um, enroll in a, an after final AFCP, after final conference. I can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for. You can do a pre-appeal brief. So you have different settle strategies, but generally you, you can choose between three decision makers, the examiner, the supervisor, and then the appeal board. You said the PTAP, so it's a patent trademark appeal board. Is that what mm -hmm. it stands for? Yep. So then this could go through several back and forth. You said the one was, what, 15, 16? Yeah, that's egregious. That's rare. So at some point, and we're going to get to that in a minute because of the, the paper you wrote about, about costs, but at some point either it works or it doesn't, and then you, you have to... And that's not the patent office's decision. You're, the applicant's the one that has to abandon it. Okay, let's step away from our talk with Kate for just a few minutes because now it's time for our Legal Tech Founder segment. But I wanted to take a minute and let you know that for each episode at tealpodcast.com, we have a dedicated page. Episode pages contain contact info for our guests, transcripts of the episodes, and links to all the stuff we talk about. So if you hear something in today's episode that piques your interest and you want to learn more, I encourage you to visit tealpodcast.com. Also, if you want to get in touch with me for any questions, comments, concerns, we'll accept praise too. Or if you want to learn more about my company, Percipient, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. So let's get to it. Let's get to our Legal Tech Founder segment. Today, we're talking to Warwick Walsh, the founder of Locadia. Warwick, thanks for being here today. Uh, tell us a little bit about Locadia. Yeah, so Locadia is a legal tech company that um, I founded with uh, Sasha Kirk, my co-founder, um, a little over three years ago now. And it's a web-based platform that sits between corporate legal teams and their law firms. 
Uh, so really designed to streamline engagements, allow clients to, to tender work, um, which they're under more pressure to do, make RFPs efficient, uh, manage ongoing scope and budget and billing. Uh, recently, we've then opened the platform up to um, internal matter management for corporate legal teams. Uh, so they can now manage existing matters, allocate tasks, uh, manage file notes, and then very shortly releasing um, business to in-house workflow, which we're really excited about. And so it's from RFP to into the engagement, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Chad. And you said it's now opened up where you can add notes and you can do some things within the project in the app itself. So that means that it's kind of like a platform which with both in-house counsel and outside counsel uses, right? Yeah, that's right. And so the in-house counsel at the moment, that sort of managing file notes, documents, tasks, that's what the in-house counsel can see, although we've got plans to open that up so you can actually work with your outside counsel to um, to manage matters um, more effectively as well. And what inspired you or how did you come up with the idea for Locadia? Originally, I was a corporate lawyer um, and wanted to set up a business not practicing law. And really, it was at the time looking at how service providers are engaged and not just within the legal vertical, but more broadly. And Uber and Airbnb are examples of that, um, where consumers are connected with service providers in alternate ways. Um, And my mind kept coming back to the way that the legal industry worked and sophisticated buyers of corporate legal services and could see a trend that they're under more pressure to streamline those engagement processes and make them more transparent and accountable than the way they have been in the past. And so that was the that was the initial sort of idea and developed very quickly. And yeah, we've obviously changed the product, you know, developed the product a lot over the over the years as we understand about what clients want and what law firms want from the platform. Um, but that's what the the original inspiration was. Was the original idea to create the app that in-house counsel could use for engagements, or did it start with another idea? No, that's that was always the idea. I think originally we started with the target market with clients where they would probably have under a million dollars spend. Um, I could see a lot of pressure on clients within the Australian market around needing to deliver value and get better value for law firms. Also, law firms are having a hunger to win work, and that was that sort of original pain point from both sides that we dealt with. What we received, though, was a lot of very encouraging feedback and interest from larger corporates and government very early on. Um, as soon as we released the initial product. And so with the first lot of funds we raised, we built the team and we built the platform for that enterprise level of client. And what are the key features of the app? On the internal matter management, so that's Locator Align, um, that's capturing matter details, then knowledge management, as well as task management. And then the, I think with Locadia Connect, it's very much managing that flow of matters from the business to in-house counsel. And one thing that's consistent across everything that we've built is we've built, you know, great workflows and and great UX. And is it a tool for in-house legal departments of all sizes, or do you have a sweet spot, big, small, in between? Yeah, we've actually got a very scalable platform that works for for teams that anywhere from sort of three to five in-house lawyers all the way up to, you know, over two, three hundred. And I think different teams get different benefits and see different value from it, but it's actually scalable enough that teams of all sizes get get value from it. Well, excellent. Warwick, I appreciate your time here today. And if people want to learn more about the product, where do they find you? Uh, Locadia.com is the easiest place to, to find out a little bit about our business and, and our platform. And yeah, obviously different ways to contact us through that. All right, let's get back to our talk with Kate Gowdry about how she uses big data to help prosecute her clients' patent applications. 
In light of the fact that Kate had a PhD at the age of 21, and even before she went to law school, and knowing that she had wanted to be a patent lawyer since she was a kid, it is not surprising that Kate started compiling and analyzing patent data even before she landed her first legal job. So I started using technology during an in-between period. Um, it was really when I was in law school and I, was, I had started to do empirical research in the legal field, which wasn't frequently done. So I had just come out of science and everybody's focused on publishing and it's hard to publish, right? And you submit a paper and you have many back and forth with the editor and it's a long process. And what I had noticed uh, is in law that wasn't the case and a lot of the places where you would likely want to have your article published where you'd have good readership were more like blog styles or online um, journals. And there was not this review process. You just needed to send it to them. And if the person who was owning the blog liked it, then they would publish it. So I thought, well, this is great. Not many people are doing it. And there's a lot of open questions. So I started at the time, I was on PAIR. I was on public PAIR, which is where there's the information about what every patent application, every published patent application has gone through. And I would just put in random numbers to get a data set. And I would see if it met my criteria. And if it did, then I would look for the information I was looking for. And I would do this until I had a sizable enough data set and I would publish on it. And you said pair. Where do you get this information and what is it specifically? What information is there about the patent application? It's everything. Um, so from the time you file the application, everything that you've submitted to the patent office is there. Every time the patent office sends you a written communication saying you did this wrong, you had an error in your filing, and then you say, oh, sorry, you know, and you submit your corrected forms when they send you the rejection, when you send the amendment, all this back and forth is there. So like one of the questions I was addressing was, is it more efficient to continue to try to work with an examiner or to move over to the to the appeal board in different decisions, right? So I would just I would go through randomly selected applications until I got enough data points on either side of this. And you got this information from the USPTO website? Mm -hmm. It seems like it probably needs some massaging because if it's just a document and stuff, how much of it did you have to manually put together? So a ton can? of it. Like there was just a spreadsheet and it was, it was mindless. A lot of it was mindless was like, you know, was this document there or not? What was the final status? You know, was it abandoned or allowed or whatever it was? But it was incredibly tedious. But I did a few of these studies. And then at the time, so this was around 20, 2009, 2010. This is when the statistical tools started coming out. And because of my articles, they contacted me, multiple companies contacted me and said, we think you'd be interested in the big data tools that we're developing. Um, we'd like to work with you. You know, you can use our data for a publication. You can cite us and maybe we can, you know, work with your firms in the future. And it was fantastic, right? So all of the afternoons and that I just spent doing this mindless, tedious work was saved and their data set was far better, far more complete. And how did they compile those da data sets? Same way? Was it manual? No. And then they would have, you know, their computer systems that were automatically crawling the path. Oh, web, web, doing web scraping and things yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. And so you started to use the tech. Were you, were you practicing at this point or are you still in law school? I was in law school. Still in law school, writing yeah. these articles, doing the analysis then. And you're just using spreadsheets at the time. That was the tech you used. Yeah. And then you get hired. How did you start putting this into practice? So I recommended using some of these examiner statistics. There's multiple things you can do. You can take the data that I was using and answer research questions, right? Is this effective or not? Which one's more effective, et cetera? What's the speed? Um, or you can say, for my particular case, what's the examiner? You know, what's the examiner like? Um, and what should I do? 
which were different, but they're related to the same data set, just different slices of it, right? Um, so after I realized this data was there, I was already talking with law firms. It's you know, the way it works in law school. You spend your summers um, interning at law firms. And then my last semester, my spring semester, my third year, I was a law clerk. So I was working with them part-time. And after seeing this data, you just need to use it. I mean, once it's there, you just need to use it. And so I talked to the firm and highly recommended that we start paying for some of this data to use in the law practice, not just for research, but you know, for particular. You mentioned these companies. Is it like Lex Machina, or is it other companies? So at the time, there were two. The first one that reached out to me was called PTO Stats, and that doesn't exist anymore. I think that got bought out. And then the other one was at the time called Patent Core, and that got bought by LexisNexis and is now a patent advisor. One of the things Kate focuses most of her research analysis on is the allowance rate. That is the percentage of patents any given patent examiner approves. As Kate explains, some examiners have much higher allowance rates than others. And sometimes it's the luck of the draw that impacts how likely it is a client's patent application will be approved. Kate not only looks at allowance rates for individual patent examiners, she also looks at the allowance rates for various groups in the patent office that are called art units. Art units are grouped together by industry or subject matter. For instance, one art unit examines and approves patents for drugs and pharmaceuticals, while another looks at patents related to automobiles. Just like allowance rates may vary by examiner, they also vary by art unit. So, why does Kate spend so much time looking at allowance rates? So she can figure out the best angles and strategies when she's interacting with the particular patent agent assigned to her client's patent applications. She does this so she can give her client the best chance of getting the application approved. An application ultimately is either allowed or it's abandoned. If their allowance rate's very high and there's few office actions, few rounds of rejection, that's very favorable to the applicant. But it might also be very low, right? And what was found um, through others' research and, and some of mine, but largely others' research, was there's a very large distribution. So you would have some examiners that had allowance rates of 95% and some with 3%. So you want to act differently in front of those people, right? So that was the, the type of data um, that they were focused on, is who's the examiner, so that you could change your prosecution decisions. So then you get, you get hired at a law firm, you, you encourage the law firm to pay for this, and they do. Yes, we are now subscribers. The business model of patent advisor has changed over time. And then some new companies have crept up, like Juristat has come up. I think there are even some others. I know Triangle IP is creating one. But... They're now primarily subscription-based, whereas before it was like per instance, right? You would say, I want to know about this examiner, and you'd pay for that report. Going back to the, the examiners, it sounds like some are more favorable than others from a, you know, a patent applicant point of view. Is it like litigation where in some jurisdiction, you know, you get a judge, you get maybe one chance to disqualify them? Is it anything like that with an examiner? Are you stuck with the examiner when they're assigned? You're stuck. So you can change decision makers, you can bring in their supervisor, but all they can do is kind of work behind the scenes. So if they're egregious, right, if this examiner is really misapplying the law, then if you have an interview with the supervisor and the examiner, you might be able to get the supervisor to say, well, you know, he, you're not applying the law correctly and then talk with them. Oftentimes, they're kind of clustered. The examiners that are that have the lower allowance rates are in art units, are in like segments of the patent office with supervisors with lower allowance rates. So that only works some of the time. But then your other choice is to appeal it and go in front of the, the PTAB. But you can't change examiners. That application is almost always going to stay with that examiner unless they quit. So you see recourse then, I think you said earlier that if you've had two... Or more rejections. You can, two rejections you can appeal, but you, you cannot appeal before that point? 
you cannot after the first one. And honestly, I think that's probably fine because oftentimes you don't know what's out there when you file an application. It's quite rare that somebody is so on top of a field that they know every publication ever. So you're probably not defining the claim scope perfectly at filing. And so to see what the examiner, what references they found and be able to change it a little bit before you appeal, I think is probably advantageous anyway. It's it's rather rare that you don't make any amendments at all. You said claim scope. That is what you're trying to protect? Mm-hmm. You mentioned it, something else earlier, and I read a couple articles that you'd written on this. Art units, what are those? So when your application is filed with the patent office, they review what technology it pertains to, and then they try to find a section of the patent office that has examiners that are trained for that technology. So when you're hired as an examiner, you're not just hired as a general examiner. What's your background? What's your expertise? You don't want somebody whose expertise is in organic chemistry to be looking at the semiconductor technology. I mean, they might know it, but probably there's a better person out there to be reviewing the semiconductor technology. So because you have these experts um, on the patent office side, you need to find a way of aligning everything, right? That's essentially what our units are. And I saw, and I think you referenced it a second ago, there's higher and lower acceptance rates based on the art unit, right? That's right. And once you're in that art unit, you stuck with that art unit? Like, Let's, let's say they put you in a certain art unit and you say, no, no, our technology is better suited for this, this unit. Can you move that or no, you're stuck? For any individual filing, you're stuck. I've never, well, the only time I've, I guess I've seen art units change is sometimes the patent office will say, okay, we figured it out. We know that your application is about you know, computational biology, so we'll assign it to that um, art unit. And the examiner gets it and says, no, 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 this is about databases, right? It's not my tech. And so if they say it right away that you got it wrong, patent office classifier, and then it will be shifted, but that's the only time I've ever seen it. Will different art units look at a single application? No. So a given technology area, like let's say artificial intelligence, there is an artificial intelligence art unit at the patent office, but that does not mean every artificial intelligence patent application that's filed will go to that art unit because it's quite rare that any given patent application pertains only to a single technology, and even if it did, that the patent office has an art unit for that specific technology. So for example, for AI, your patent application might be applying AI to robotics. So do you go to the robotics art unit or do you go to the AI art unit, right? So when you're trying to characterize an overall industry, you're going to be looking at data from multiple art units. And once they decide it, that's where it's going. It's going to robotics, not AI. That, that's right. So how much can you influence, if at all, in the application itself as to where it, what art unit it goes to? Quite a bit. And a lot of that starts with this brainstorming session that I tell you that we have from the beginning. So once a client says, here's our idea, if they come to me and tell me about their business model and how their customers are going to use their product and interact with it and why it's making a big difference, that's not going to be patentable. Like what's going to be patentable kind of in the computer space is what the computer's doing and, you know, security measures and um, the communications back and forth between the server and de-identification issues, right? And all of these specifics and any use of AI, right? So drilling down into the implementation details. And so that's the kind of questioning that you want to have from your attorney. You don't want to have them understand only the sales pitch. They need to go down into the technical specifics. And so then once you've kind of gotten down to that right level, then you write it up like that and 
and you therefore influenced where it's going to go. If you write a business method patent application, it's only concentrating on how people are going to use it and the interaction back and forth between a computer and a user. You'll be assigned to a business method art unit and you're going to have a really hard time getting that through. And so that's where a lot of this data that you're, you're collecting and have collected over time comes into to use because you can figure out the best angle to, to pitch the application, right? Pretty well. A lot of allowance rates will change based on court decisions, based on guidance, based on who's the director of the patent office. But the combination of being in tune with the changes that are occurring, meaning seeing the updates of the new case law, understanding that there's a new director, understanding when the supervisors shift art units, and looking at the data provides you with a lot of insight. What frequently happens is it will be a personal anecdote where you know I'll be I'll be prosecuting an AI application. This happened when you used to all the AI applications used to just sail through. It was a very very high allowance rate area, and then that stopped being the case. So before I would go there and I'd almost pull back what I would try to protect because I felt like the patent office was giving us too much, and I'd say no. In view of what I'm seeing, we want to narrow the claims, right? And then they started. Um, saying that things that I thought were allowable were not, right? So there's this very dramatic change based on those anecdotal experiences. Then I went and looked at the data and saw, yes, there was an overall very dramatic trend. And let's talk about that, the, the, the data. You say you looked at it, you pull in from multiple sources or a single single source? For a given study, it's usually a single source, um, but I, I do use multiple sources overall. What are the nuts and bolts? How do, how do you use this information? From the software itself, or do you take it out and put it in your own you know, spreadsheets, or how do you use it? Yeah, usually I work in spreadsheets. Rarely I'll work in MATLAB if the data set's big enough, but I usually get the information in the spreadsheet and do rather simple math, rather trend, um, simple trend analyses, statistical generations um, that can all be done in Excel. So. so at what point do you start looking at the data? What point in, in the client's journey, the patent journey? Or is it right out of the gate when you figured out that there's this kind of technology and this kind of invention is what you're trying to protect? Or or, or once, it, once you know, you've seen where it's assigned? For me, I... I'm knee deep in the data. So from the time that I'm talking with somebody, I have a pretty good sense of if your technology applies to five different areas, I have a pretty good sense of the general allowance rates of those areas. And that's how I can guide discussion without having to turn to the computer in the midst of our discussion and, right. and guess and check. Other people might be doing that, right? And then once your patent application's filed and then there's no reason not to be looking at the data there because there is a person assigned to be looking at your patent application and you should know as much as you can about this person so you know how to interact with them. So let's talk about that for a second. You got the examiner assigned and you want to learn about them so you can interact with them in in the most (laughs) beneficial way to the client. What types of information can you pull from the data that helps you with your interactions with the examiner? There's a hundred statistics but the vast majority of them are correlated with allowance rate. So for me, that's the most important thing that I want to see is a recent allowance rate. If you have a high allowance rate, you're typically not going to have a lot of back and forth rounds per patent. It's probably going to be pretty quick. You're probably going to be pretty quick at turning things. Um, your appeal data probably won't be very relevant, right? And so that once I've figured out if you're a high allowance rate examiner, I want to make sure that the patent I'm getting through, I think is valid and complies with case law and is non-obvious and novel based on the art I've seen. But then I want to get the broadest protection possible, right? So I don't want to be over-eager about amending the claims in that situation. Meanwhile, for an examiner that has a very low allowance rate, I might throw in, you know, the kitchen sink 
in round one because it's like, well, let's just try to get uh, anything depending on the value, right? We want to make sure that we're cognizant of the type of protection the client wants to get. But if a patent's of concern and we're worried about maybe we don't want to have the delay of going to the PTAB, but we'll be more aggressive in our claim amendments from day one so that if the examiner says, no, this is still not allowable, then I can feel like, well, we tried our best. So now we're done. And now we can either abandon or go to the PTAB because this back and forth with the examiner is likely leading nowhere. We've played all of our cards. When you know you have a, an examiner with a low allowance rate and you throw everything in the kitchen sink in there, do you ever do that so then when you get that rejection, you can say, all right, we'll cut this part out of it, try it with this one? Or do you do it just so it's in there and you can't appeal it and it, everything's in there for the appeal? Usually it's for the appeal. Um, so the if it's a low allowance rate examiner, that's typically in the business method area and they have the hardest PTAB judges as well. So if you're going to get something, it'll be more narrow than in other areas of the patent office. Uh, so if you're okay with that narrow scope, like, let's go for it. If you get a patent at that point, you might consider a continuation to go for a little broader scope. And all of this just depends on degrees, right? So if you have a 10 or 15% allowance rate examiner versus five versus 30, you know, these are all different approaches and the interaction. So despite all the technology, I s still think one of the more valuable parts of my practice is interviewing and speaking with examiners because the data can show whatever it wants to show. Could have been an anomaly, right? Maybe this examiner was under the supervision of a low allowance rate supervisor because they didn't have signing power for a while. And finally they got signing power. And so now they can like walk on their own and they're not going to have, right? You, you can understand this if you're speaking with somebody, the data is not going to reflect that as well. It's always so interesting because obviously this is a legal tech podcast, but no matter what we're talking about, no matter the issue, no matter the tech, you can't take the people out of it, period. There's always some part of the process where it's very driven by the person. That, that interview point is, is very interesting. You know, to put this in context, the allowance rates, as of right now, what's, what's a high and what's a low? I've seen a 100% allowance rate over a two-year period. I've seen a 0% allowance rate. So Kate and one of her colleagues wrote a fascinating article recently about using all the data they collect to make decisions about whether or not to pursue a patent application by using game theory. What is game theory? It's a mathematical model used to analyze outcomes and make the best decisions possible when there are multiple players that can impact the outcome. In the article, Kate and her colleague explain how people and companies applying for patent protection, using game theory, they can decide whether to proceed to the next step. As explained in the article, game theory can be used to analyze the value of the patent being pursued versus how much it's going to cost to proceed to the next step in the patent application process. I think this is so cool because it's a real, actual use of data to make informed decisions about a legal matter. I think it's cool, too, because this game theory angle can be used not just in patent applications, but in other areas of the law, such as litigation and dispute resolution. The general idea of game theory, and I'm not actually proposing that people do the math here, they could, but it's more thinking of it in terms of the game theory structure, is that if you have multiple options in front of you, you want to consider the cost of pursuing either option in terms of financial cost or time in view of the probability of a particular outcome also combined with the value of getting any of those particular outcomes. So if you have, you know, option one is going to cost you $50,000, but the potential to have a million dollar valued outcome, and let's say it was, you know, 100%, and then that would be highly attractive. But what if it was only 5%, right? What if it was 1%? So that should affect your tendency towards each one of these options. Frequently what I see with others and some clients in the industry is 
that a um, technique will be identified, right? The best approach is to appeal after the second office action, or the best approach is to keep working with the examiner, you know, as long as possible. And that's almost never a good idea, right? To have just kind of a blanket approach. Uh, instead, you need to be looking at the case-specific situation and the particular costs and the particular values and deciding what the best option is. And like I said, I'm not actually proposing that people engage in the math. They can, but it's more of this is the type of analysis that you need to be thinking about every time. So that's interesting. Because you said sometimes a, a rote decision is made. We're going to continue on with the examiner. We're going to appeal. Before we had access to this data, say, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, what was the best way to make those decisions? Well, the b- best way would have been interviewing the examiner and trying to guess, right? Based on, some examiners will tell you, like, I can ask them, when was the last time you allowed a case? And they'll tell me, it's been over a year. It's not my fault, right? The patent office has kind of tied my hands behind the back. But once they tell me that, my decision-making process is quite different. So they're essentially telling you the data that we now have accessible in the computer system. Some of them will misimply what the data actually is, right? And some will refuse to tell you, so it's better to have it from the computer. But I, I think that's probably how I would have gone about it before. And to your point, too, there's really no reason now that data's out there. There's no reason not to use it now to make an yeah. educated decision. So, so you said the article, on the Game Theory article, the cost of the prosecution was kind of focused there. What are some other variables you could use other than cost and use the Game Theory to make decisions about Speed. whether... Speed. So appeals typically take... Uh, more than a year, more than two years, perhaps. They've gotten actually a lot better at it, the patent office has, but it used to be really egregiously long. And so if you wanted to try to get a patent as quickly as possible, appeal was rarely the right approach, uh, unless you're at a standstill, right? And then two, I mean, you can also consider it based on fast tracking. So if the um, speed is of the essence, and then it might be worth it to pay for the fast track that will speed up not only the normal examination, but would also speed up the appeal. And fast tracking, you know, we've talked about what the fees were before, but you're actually not done. That pays for an initial set of reviews. So if you get your application allowed within two office actions, that's covered. If you're keep going after that, that's not. And then you have to pay for more. You, you would have to pay for the fee again. Like I try to do with all my guests, I asked Kate where she would suggest new patent attorneys start to use technology and data to best serve their clients. And like many of the guests on this podcast that have come before her, Kate basically said you need to take a step back from the tech and data, look at the process involved in the legal matter, and figure out what questions to ask and ascertain what data you really need to best represent your clients. If you don't know what the questions are, these numbers mean nothing. Um, And I think that's how a lot of my research starts is that I have a question for a client or I see something that's a little funny which brings me back to the data. And only once you have an actual question to ask, does the data mean anything? If you know that you're in front of a 90% versus a 10% allowance rate examiner, if you don't have a plan in terms of how you're going to differentially act in front of them, the data is useless. So I think it's kind of getting familiar with the industry and identifying different ways to lawyer and figure out how the data might influence what's the most effective approach. Great. Well, appreciate your time. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they find you? My uh, bio in the firm is Kate Godry at Kilpatrick Townsend. My email is a bit lengthy. It's K-G-A-U-D-R-Y at kilpatricktownsend.com.
Well, that's it for this episode of Technically Legal. We really appreciate listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, etc. If you like us enough, we hope you leave us a good rating too. And if you're going to be in Chicago at the P3 conference on June 12th or 13th, let me know. Shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co and let's connect. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.